We are continuing our series through the book of Revelation. And last week, last Sunday, we looked at Revelation 19, the first 10 verses. We're going to look at Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21 this morning. And as is our custom, if you're able to do so, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to smite down, to strike down rather the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in the presence, in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, again, we're, we're going through the book of Revelation. We've been going through it most of this uh, past year. We only have three more chapters to go. Uh, some of you weren't here last Sunday. We looked at the first ten verses of this chapter. And there in the first ten verses of, of Revelation 19, we saw the, the hallelujah chorus in heaven. That's really what's going on. It's where, uh, where uh, the Messiah, that, uh, that great uh, music, uh, was based upon, was this, this uh, hallelujah chorus in our chapter is what that great song uh, was based upon. And in this chapter, in those ten verses, God, that hallelujah chorus, God was praised for mainly two things, two things that we might not think, especially the first one, uh, to praise God for, but we should praise him for, and he deserves praise for it. And the first of those things was God's great judgments, specifically his judgment on the great harlot in verse 2, Babylon, which had been, Babylon is a, is a mystery, it's a picture, not the real earthly Babylon that was long since passed, but Babylon is pictured as kind of the source of, of most of the violent persecution upon God's people in the first century and all throughout church history. And so God is praised here for judging Babylon. Those who would harm the apple of his eye, God defends his church. He always defends his church, and so he is praised for his judgment upon Babylon. The second thing that God is praised for, and that we sing hallelujah about in that chapter, in the first part of the chapter, is the, the great marriage supper of the Lamb in verse 9. 
And I think we saw last week that the, the scriptures here in this chapter, they, they intentionally paint a contrast, God does in his word here, between the harlot that the world looked up to in so many ways, and yet she was struck down, and the bride of Christ, who is shown in her glory in that chapter, in that, uh, that wedding. And there in that, those verses in verse 8, it said that the, the bride, which is the church, that's, that's you and me, was granted to her, quote, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. It's the same phrase used in our text this morning about the armies of heaven. It's, that's a hint. We're supposed to take one as pointing to the other. And that wedding dress, so to speak, of the bride, which is the church, is what, in verse 8 says, the righteous deeds of the saints. How do you get ready? How are we supposed to get ready for the wedding day, so to speak, of Christ's return? By righteous deeds, by, by living according to God's will in good works, walking in holiness according to the working of the Holy Spirit within us. Now this life, in this life anyway, the church militant often seems weak in anything but glorious and triumphant. You know, think about any church, but think about our church. Think about how small we are, humanly speaking. I always sort of halfway jokingly tell people if our town had a contest for the smallest church, we'd at least be in the running, right? Depend, depending on the Sunday, we might win. You know, we don't, there's nothing about us or any church really, no matter how big and, and you know, fancy they may seem, not, nothing about the church seems very glorious or triumphant in this life. You know, the church in different places, as we even prayed for the church in China this morning, the church is often appearing harassed and helpless, tattered and torn, but here in our chapter, both in the first ten verses as well as in our chapter, part of the chapter here, what we're reminded of is the real glory of Christ and the real glory, the true glory of Christ's church as the bride of Christ. On the great wedding day feast, the church will be seen in all her glory for the first time. And then in our text here in verse 11, John kind of the vision that John is given kind of switches gears, doesn't it? The church is pictured not as the bride, as she was in the first ten verses, but as the army of Christ. So we go from a picture of the church as a bride to the picture of the church as Christ's army, even, quote, the armies of heaven in verse 14. It's almost as if the scripture, no one analogy or metaphor can can do justice to what Christ is or to what his church, his bride, and his army is. And so I want to look at a couple things in our text in the last half of chapter 19. And the first thing that John tells us about in this vision is a vision of the glorious conquering Christ. A vision of the conquering Christ. And in a sense, the first part of this vision, really the whole thing, is about the glory of our King, Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at verses 11 through 13. Jesus is pictured as a rider on a white horse. John says, Then I saw heaven opened, Verse 11, and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So John says he sees Verse 11, heaven open. Now what does that mean? Does, you know, what, what he's, what he's being told of and what he's telling us of here is he's given a vision in symbolic form of a, you know, so to speak, a peek behind the curtain. This doesn't mean he's seeing the way things actually are. 
Jesus Christ, risen and ascended to the right hand of God the Father, does not have a sword sticking out of his face. It's not what Jesus looks like. That's not the point. Remember, these visions are not there to tell us what things look like. They're there to tell us what things are like. Remember, the book of Revelation is it's, remember, it's not a puzzle book, it's a picture book. And what these pictures are meant to tell us is the way things actually are. We often, you know, in our weakness and our flesh, we don't see things the way they really are. Like I said, we see the church in this life struggling and bedraggled and harassed and persecuted. We read Revelation and we see the glory of the bride of Christ. We see the glory of, of the armies of heaven. That's not just angels, that's the church. That's the real way things are. Revelation is given to us to remind us and reveal to us how things actually are despite what they look like in this life. Uh, We're supposed to have the eyes of faith to see how things really are by these pictures in this vision. You know, does Jesus Christ, our Savior, when he comes back, is he going to be riding, literally riding a white horse? I don't think so. I don't think that's what this is meant to teach us, is there going to be a battle on the last day with bodies all over the earth and birds gorging on their flesh? I don't think that's the point. I think it's supposed to be a picture of total conquest and victory over Christ's enemies. But we are, I think we're to consider this vision and take it all in, so to speak, that we might be reminded and remember that our Savior, Jesus Christ, is really the conquering king. And he's conquering now. It doesn't always look like it to us, but that's what he's doing now, and that's what he'll do on the last day. That's what this vision and this whole book really is meant to teach us and remind us of. He's pictured as sitting on a white horse. Why is he on a white horse? Of all the horses he could be on, a white horse, it's a war horse. And it's a picture of a horse, kind of a, a victorious, you know, it's almost as if it's the horse he's riding in the parade after the victory. It's a, it's a white stallion, a white steed that he's, you know, coming into town after the battle. White is the color here of victory. And so you have Jesus Christ, the Lord, uh, our Savior, going forth, it says, in righteousness to judge and to make war. You know, it's almost Christmas time, and whenever Christmas comes around, we think of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and that has its place. Well, this is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild here. This is Jesus on a war horse defending his church and conquering his enemies and making them his footstool. That's the picture of this chapter and of really of the whole book of Revelation in some, in some ways. This is a vision of the victorious Christ conquering all his enemies and ours. And why, why is this given to us? You ever think about that? Why, why is this book that to us often seems so strange? Why is it given to us in the first place? Why is this chapter with its imagery that we might find, again, kind of strange and hard to understand. Why do we have this in the scriptures? I think it's meant to strengthen and encourage us as believers, especially the persecuted church. Wherever the church is suffering and persecuted, they get revelation just fine when they read it. They understand, I think, better than we often do, the message of encouragement and comfort that it is meant to be. Now, time does not permit us this morning to go into every little detail of, the, of this part of the chapter. And so I'll apologize ahead of time if I don't answer everybody's questions that you might have. And I think words kind of fail to do it justice to begin with. But I think this vision is given to us for our benefit, our edification. And so what I want to do this morning is spend a little bit of time unpacking a few of the things that John talks about in this vision. 
Um, well, the first thing I want to look at in our text is Christ's exalted names and titles. There are a number of names and titles given to him, it, it told of him in our text. Look at verse 11. It says that John there tells us that Jesus is called what? Faithful and true. Now remember back in verse 2, it said his judgments, God was to be praised for his judgments, for his judgments were true and just. Here where it says Christ is faithful and true, you know, it's not just his judgments that are faithful and true, it's the judge himself who is faithful and true. The same basic two words are used here in both of those verses, verse 2 and verse 11. What does it mean that Jesus Christ our Lord is faithful? He's faithful to fulfill all of his promises to his redeemed people. Everything he says in his word, every promise he makes to us, to his people, his redeemed people, he will fulfill. Not a word he says will fall to the ground. What about all the threatenings that he makes to his enemies and the enemies of his church? Now, the scripture is full of warnings to the unrepentant. It's full of warnings to those who would harm the apple of God's eye. He will fulfill all those threatenings as well on behalf of his people. He will fulfill all the duties he has as our mediator, as our prophet, priest, and king. Christ can be completely trusted and counted upon in all things that we need. Our Lord is also true. He's faithful and true. His word will never fail. What does Jesus, in fact, call himself in, in uh, John fourteen six, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not just true. He is the truth. John also tells us that one of the names given to Christ is the word of God. In verse 13, this is what the scriptures call him in John, the same writer. John 1, verse 1, you might have this memorized. John says, in the beginning was what, or whom? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was and is God. Christ himself is the Word of God. He's the one through whom God the Father created all things in the universe. John 1, 3. He's also the ultimate revelation of God. Jesus Christ is God's ultimate revelation of himself. Listen to Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. The writer says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, that's Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Those last two sentences, are it's it's hard to wrap your mind around them. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then what does it say? The one who upholds The universe, by the word of his power, came down and made purification for our sins, died for our sins, and rose again on the third day. And then, what does it say? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's hard to even think about and imagine what that says about our Savior, our Redeemer. In verse 16, John tells us of one of the Lord's loftiest titles. 
It says on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. And what is it? King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. You know, that's two ways of looking at that that both add, you know, kind of go together. One, it sounds kind of like a a Hebraism, you know, a, a Hebrew phrasing where you would say it's a way of saying he's the greatest of this category. He's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. And on top of that, He's actually the king of all kings. He's the one that rules over heaven and earth. There is no power or authority higher than Christ. What does Paul say in Philippians 2, 9 through 11? He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that's Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And what's the result of that? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, everyone in the entire universe, everyone in heaven, everyone on earth, all the living and all the dead, will bow the knee to Jesus Christ and confess that he is, in fact, Lord. Everyone that mocks and denies him now, one day will be forced to acknowledge him as Lord. And so I ask this morning, what about you? What about you this morning? Do you gladly bow your knee to Christ the Lord as Lord and Savior by faith? Are you gladly bowing the knee? Do you gladly confess Him as your Lord? Psalm 2 verse 12 says, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And the last name that we're told about, it says in verse 12, He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. No one knows this name but Christ Himself. He's so highly exalted, he has a name that we don't even know and can't know. Now, we shouldn't speculate. What is what is the name? We shouldn't speculate about it. The point is, he's greater than we can imagine. That's kind of half the point. He's so exalted, we can't even begin to wrap our minds around it or know him fully. Well, that brings us, I think, to the second thing that, that John emphasizes in this vision, and that's Christ's exalted garments or investiture. He talks about Christ's glorious investiture or his royal garments, his royal raiment as our conquering king. He says that the Lord has, quote, verse 12, many diadems on his head. What's a diadem? It's a crown. It's like a jeweled crown. It's a royal crown. He he doesn't just have one. He has many. It's like he has them all collected. They all belong to him. He has many crowns, as the hymn says that we just sang earlier in the service, crown him with many crowns. He's, he has many crowns. He rules over all things. This speaks of his power and his authority over all the nations. In fact, in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, what does Jesus tell us, tell his church? Before he sends us to go make disciples, he says, all authority in heaven on, and on earth has been given to him. All. In heaven and on earth. All authority everywhere is given to Christ. In fact, Jesus Christ, again, this is one of the things that uh, we lose sight of, I think, very often. Jesus Christ, is he waiting to reign at some point in the future? Is he sitting on his hands at the right hand of God the Father, waiting to rule? Is that what Jesus is doing now, exalted at God's right hand? No, he's ruling now. His rule will be made fully manifest one day in the future, but he's ruling over all things Now, even if it doesn't always look like it to us, 
who don't always see things with the eyes of faith. What Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 26, this chapter is about the, re- the resurrection. But look at what he says about, about Christ's resurrection and what it implies about his rule. He says, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 26, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, that's Adam, as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority every authority and every power. And here it is. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. What is Paul saying about Christ's reign? He's reigning now. He must reign until he puts, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ our Lord and Savior must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. He's reigning now. He is conquering and subduing his enemies now. He is gathering and defending his church now. That's why we're told in this vision that Christ is wearing a robe dipped in blood. Whose blood is that robe covered with? You might think it's his own, but not in this chapter. This is the blood of his enemies. He's treading out the wine press of the wrath and fury of God. This particular blood is not his own, the blood he shed for our forgiveness. This is the blood of his enemies. What are his weapons of war? What does this vision say about his weapons of war? Verse 11, he rides a white horse. Again, it's a war horse. It's a horse of victory. He has, quote, verse 16, a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. Verse 15, rather. A sharp sword coming out of his mouth. That, that might ring a bell to you from earlier in the book. In Revelation 1.16, it was also another vision of the glorified Christ. John saw a vision of Christ with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. It's as if the, the book of Revelation kind of bookends the book with that picture, to put that picture in mind from beginning to end. What's he doing in verse 11 with that sword? He's riding forth, judging and making war, striking down the nations and ruling them, sounds like Psalm 2, ruling them with a rod of iron and treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. I think this picture of the sword coming out of his mouth and the results of it, we have to be reminded of the almighty power of the word of God. The word of God is the sword. It is Christ's weapon of choice. It is his word, not earthly weapons, by which he conquers his enemies. Christ conquers with his word. He conquers his enemies by his word in one of two ways. He conquers his enemies by his grace very often in conversion. Think of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. If there was ever an enemy of the cross of Christ before his conversion, it was Saul of Tarsus. And what did he think was about to happen? He thought he was about to be struck dead, and he would have deserved it, but what happened? Christ converted him and told him, basically, now you're going to serve me. 
Now you're gonna, you might, you're gonna suffer for my sake, but you're gonna be a messenger of the gospel that you once hated and persecuted. He also conquers his enemies by condemnation and judgment. Romans 5.10, it says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Christ died for us, if you're a Christian this morning, he died for you when you were his enemy. And so we have now been reconciled to God by the death of his son. He works our conversion by means of the preaching of the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ, by means of his gospel, is judging and making war. That may sound like a strange thing, a strange picture. We don't picture the gospel making war, but that's what he is doing. And the gospel, as Christ's weapon of warfare, he's making war in a more glorious and more victorious fashion than any earthly ruler has ever dreamed of. Remember, you think of the phrase, it's attributed to Alexander the Great, I don't know if it's true, but it says he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. Well, Jesus doesn't have that problem. And Jesus doesn't need an earthly army that we might think of to conquer. He's conquering his enemies without fail by the preaching of his word. Christ is conquering all the nations right now. And how is he doing it? By his word. And one day he will come again with glory to make his judgments and his rule fully complete and manifest. Joel Beakey, in his commentary on Revelation, writes the following. He says, this is a picture not just of the last day, but of all times when Christ rides out among the nations of this world, conquering and to conquer. It is the picture of Christ with his gospel sword riding around this world and conquering his subjects. Revelation 19, it is a picture of the end. It is a picture of Christ on that last day. The, the end result of the battle, but at the same time, it's also a picture of now. He's going forth even now, conquering and to conquer by the power of his word. So in short, once again, we're given here a vision, both at the beginning of Revelation and here almost at the very end. We're given a vision of the glory of the exalted Christ. Again, the, the book of Revelation begins and kind of ends with the same or a similar vision. It kind of bookends the whole book with these visions of Christ in all of his glory. And I don't think that's an accident. I think one of the things that that teaches us, as, we're, as we are the church militant in this life, before we are in glory, we need to be reminded of the glory of our king, often. We need to read about it, sing about it, pray about it, be reminded of it in the midst of the things we go through in this life in serving Christ for his glory. Here in our text this morning, I think uh, we who are in Christ are encouraged to consider the certainty of Christ's victory. We are to think about and, and, and think much about Christ's victory and how certain and complete it is and our victory being certain and complete in him. That's what Paul was talking about in Romans 8.37 when he says, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's Revelation. That's the title of William Hendrickson's book on Revelation, More Than Conquerors, and I think that nails it right on the head. That's what the whole book is about. Well, the second thing I'd like us to look at, the second part of our chapter, we won't be able to spend too much time on it, is not just the glory of our king, but the conquest of our king, the conquest of, of our king over his enemies, and that involves what the Bible teaches us about the reality of hell, the reality of the utter defeat 
and eternal punishment of the wicked, even the beast and the false prophet and all who reject Christ. They are defeated, according to our text, by Christ himself and the armies of heaven, which is you, which is the church, his saints, following him also on white horses. We're, we're pictured as part of this battle. We aren't the ones at the front, and he's the one that gains the victory, but we are involved. He uses us in it. And in this chapter, as well as elsewhere in the book, as we go to the end of, of Revelation, uh, we are reminded of the sobering reality of hell. What, is it, what does it describe it as here in our text? In verse 20, a lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Now again, is it literally a lake of fire? I don't think that's the point. In fact, uh, my, my favorite Puritan, uh, Thomas Watson, this isn't an exact quote, but he said something like this, in comparison to hell, all other earthly fire is but painted fire. It looks like a painted picture of a fireplace. You know, if you saw a picture of fire hanging on the wall, you wouldn't, hey kids, don't touch it. You know, it's nothing. All earthly fire is nothing compared to hell. What a contrast to the glory of Christ and his church. The wicked, even those who hate Christ and those who have persecuted his church, will one day made to be pay, they will be made to pay for their sins and do so for the rest of eternity. The Bible's teaching about the reality of hell and the eternal punishment of the unrepentant is obviously offensive to many. It makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? When you bring it up, I once had a co-worker years ago. Uh, we were talking uh, at work. We had a lot of time on our hands. And she asked me point blank, do you believe I'm going to hell? I wasn't expecting that question. And I, I had to be honest. You have to tell them what the Word of God says. I said, if you remain in your sins and don't ever come to Christ by faith, then that's where you'll be going. I couldn't lie. You can't be dishonest to such a person. I hope that one day she repents, if she hasn't yet. But the Bible's testimony to hell and eternal punishment uh, must not be uh, undone. We must not uh, try to say what the Bible does not say. We must not try to unsay what the Bible does say. Many in our day and always have sought to minimize or even deny what the Bible says about this subject, but we must not do this. You know, what what does the Bible say? Let God be true and every man a liar. If the Bible says it, it says it. And we should make no apologies for it. God makes no apologies for it. You know, every first Sunday of the month, uh, we often confess together the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And you might have noticed if you've been here, when we confess the Apostles' Creed, there's a line that maybe some of you are not as used to hearing or saying, there's a line where we say that Christ, quote, descended into hell. Now, did Jesus Christ go to a lake of fire? I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's what the, what the Apostles' Creed is teaching or affirming. The Bible doesn't say it in so many words. But, you know, next time we are tempted to object to the truth of the Bible about the sobering reality of hell and eternal torment of the unrepentant, we must remember one thing, that our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, has himself suffered the full weight of the wrath of God for our sins. The reason it's in the Apostles' Creed to begin with is to remind us and teach us that Jesus suffered hell in our place, if you're a Christian this morning. We're so quick to want to deny or downplay hell. Jesus suffered the wrath, the full wrath of God that we were owed for our sins, He suffered hell in our place. And so in some ways, to try to deny the reality of hell is to deny part of the gospel. 
in a very real way. Those who remain in their sin and unbelief, they do so in the face of a Savior who loves sinners enough to suffer hell in their place. And so let no one accuse Christ of a lack of love over the reality of hell. Remember last week we saw that in some sense, Christ's judgments and and the wrath of God is for the benefit of his redeemed people. And in the same way, hell does not undo the love of Christ in some ways. It reminds us of it if we think of it rightly. The biblical witness to the sobering reality of hell is meant to do at least two things if we take it to heart. The first thing it's meant to do, I think, is to convict sinners of their wickedness before a holy God and to drive them to seek salvation from sin and condemnation through faith in Jesus Christ, the only Savior of sinners. That's, if you think, if you're not a believer this morning and you're hearing about hell and you're, oh, I knew we shouldn't have came here this Sunday, and if you're, it makes you uncomfortable, well, good. It should make you uncomfortable. But don't just let it make you uncomfortable. Let it drive you to Jesus Christ by faith. Jesus suffered hell so that you wouldn't have to if you come to him by faith in him. And so I ask this morning, have you turned to Christ by faith for salvation from your sin? If you remain in your sin and unbelief, you will suffer eternal punishment in hell. No one takes any joy. No one should take any joy in saying that. Turn to Christ by faith and live. Be reconciled to God by faith in the Savior while you still have time to do so. And the second thing I think the truth of hell and the certainty of the destruction and punishment of the wicked is meant to do, and this is the real reason it's in this book, is it's meant to bring comfort to the suffering and persecuted church. That may seem like a strange thing, but that's exactly the picture painted for us here in the second half of Revelation 19. The enemies of Christ's church who have persecuted and martyred so many of God's people will one day suffer punishment in hell. The beast is thrown into hell. The false prophet is thrown into hell. Later on in the next chapter, we're going to find even the dragon, Satan himself, cast into the lake of fire. And Paul, you know, Paul says the same thing in a different way. If you want to get your theology of how exactly are we supposed to understand what's going to happen, you read Paul. You read the epistles. If you want to get the, the picture of it, so to speak, and the impression of it, you read Revelation. Look, Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Paul says this, and he's writing to a persecuted church in Thessalonica. He says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're suffering. He's saying, the things you're suffering right now that make you think something is wrong, they are actually evidence uh, that you're considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Christ had the cross before the crown, and so will his people. He says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will suffer the the, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day 
to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. He says some very difficult things in that passage in some ways. But glory for God's people uh, and wrath upon the wicked are both there. And they are not contradicting each other in any way. In fact, he's saying that, you know, take, he's telling the Thessalonians to take comfort from it. They were suffering for their faith in Christ in, in their time, in serving him in their generation. And he's saying, take heart. One day God will make all these things right. That is, in some ways, again, that's the message of Revelation. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, is reigning now, and he will make all things completely right one day. And he's conquering his enemies and ours through the preaching of his word. Jesus Christ is even now, again, judging and making war through the ministry of his almighty word and through his church, as far as his church is faithful to make his word known. He will gather and defend his church. You know, this this chapter, this picture of this sword coming out of Christ's mouth, it, it tells us what we have to be about as a church, what any true church of Jesus Christ must be about. The weapons of our warfare, so to speak, must be the word of God and nothing else. If we are unfaithful to, to the word of God in our ministries, we, we will not be part of God, of Christ's victory, and making war. If we try to build the church through some other means, we might be building something, but it won't be the church. We must be faithful to his word because that's the, the weapon of his warfare. And again, he's even now judging and making war through the power of his word. And one day, as we confess together in the Nicene Creed, it says that we, we say, He shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. That's Revelation in a nutshell. He's going to come again one day, not to suffer, but with glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom, unlike the earthly kingdoms of this world that we are so impressed by, uh, will have no end. Amen. Let's, let's pray.